0: Thanks Althea and it's a great day in Charlottesville. The sun is shining. I see lots of orange and blue and have heard about reunions that from last night from several folks, so everyone is pumped up and fired to go today, as I am to introduce our two speakers. First, we have Molly Schwartzberg, who joined UVA in 2012 as curator of the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections. In this role, she builds modern collections of rare books, manuscripts, and archives. Her recent exhibitions include the University of Virginia and a hundred objects, Faulkner, Life and Work, and Shakespeare by the Book, Four Centuries of Printing, Editing, and Publishing. Molly graduated from Harvard University, the University of Colorado at Boulder, and received her PhD from Stanford University. In 2017 Molly received UVA's very own Lifetime Learning Outstanding Faculty Speaker Award. Joining Molly is John Unsworth, and he joined UVA in 2013 and was appointed as the 15th University Librarian and Dean of the Libraries, as well as Professor of English at the University of Virginia. John's appointment was a homecoming of sorts. He received his PhD in English, served as a professor, as well as the first director of the Institute for Advanced Technology in the Humanities at UVA. John also graduated from Amherst College and Boston University and he is recognized as a pioneer in the field of digital humanities and in 2005 received the Richard W. Lyman Award from the National Humanities Center and he was also appointed by President Obama to a very prestigious uh, council membership on the National Humanities Council. So please join me in welcoming Molly and John to More Than The Score.
1: Thank you for that kind introduction and thank you all for being here. Um, My name is John Unsworth. And I'm gonna. Oh, there's the clicker. Okay, I'm gonna talk a little bit first about what it takes to bring in a gift like the Alifont collection, and then I'm gonna get out of the way and let Molly uh, show you some of that collection because that will be far more engaging than what I have to say. So, unpacking Pat Oliphant is the title of our talk today, and. Uh, this really was a long and winding road Um, this gift was already in process uh, when I arrived here uh, a little more than two years ago now people had already been working on it in fact a lot of people had been working on it and I'm sure I've left someone out of this list but this includes uh, people from the Miller Center uh, people from Arts and Sciences uh, the art history department, uh, people from the library, uh, development and fundraising folks, uh, alums, the provost, um, the president of the university played an important role in this, uh, my predecessor, uh, immediate predecessor, Martha Seitz, uh, Bob Sweeney, who some of you will know is our head of development for many years here. This was his sort of final special project. Uh, so really many people quick part i uh, don 't want to pass over the name of Beth Turner there i 'll come back to Beth in a minute so one of the interesting questions about this gift is why did it come to UVA? Uh, Pat Oliphant is not an alum of the university uh, he doesn 't have family connections to the university he doesn 't have uh, you know children here or relatives here on the faculty or his students so Why did he begin to talk to us in the first place? Uh, It was really Beth Turner who brought uh, Pat Oliphant into our orbit. And this is a little excerpt from an interview that uh, was done uh, as part of a a magazine article on uh, museums in the area that arose out of a class that was taught at VCU but included students at other Virginia institutions. And Beth says when asked uh, what exhibit at the UVA Art Museum that was produced under your guidance are you most proud of, says the Oliphant political cartoon exhibit in the winter of 2009 was a great exhibit because it referred to a contemporary event and it happened right at the time of the campaign and the inauguration. A living artist came, Oliphant came, and he came with all his journalist friends and he had, a, and had great public events. The installation was exquisite, and we're very proud of that. We were able to combine that with a historical look, too, able to look back and ahead because we were to uh, combine that with the Daumier Show. I'm pretty proud of that exhibit. So this relationship uh, with Oliphant and the University of Virginia began uh, through Beth Turner and began as an exhibition. And... Shannon Cruz Ranson was the UVA major in art history who's interviewing Beth in that uh, story. She was a senior in 2011. She worked as a docent in the University of Virginia Art Museum, and she wanted to uh, her key areas of interest, she said, are American crafts, antique decorative arts, as well as urban street art, graffiti, murals, tags, etc. Last fall, I began to document and archive ongoing graffiti trends throughout the urban areas of Richmond which will be compiled into a blog and possible book later this year. Well, as I was exploring this uh, course site, which is still out there on the web, uh, I stumbled on this uh, peculiar coincidence. My last job before I came here uh, was as university librarian and chief information officer at Brandeis University in Massachusetts. Uh, This class was mounted in response to a scandal that happened at Brandeis University. Uh, Just before I got there... Um, <laughs> was not a part of my administration uh, but you may have heard about it uh, because in the uh, financial crash uh, Brandeis had some difficulty with its uh, finances and its campaign many of its major donors were invested with Bernie Madoff too uh, that, that didn't help um, and the trustees uh, began to seriously consider and propose to sell off Uh, Some of the art collection in the Rose Art Museum. And it is a fabulous collection of contemporary art. And uh, people are raised to stink about this. The Attorney General of Massachusetts got involved, um, and the art was never sold. But this class and the whole uh, surveying of uh, museums in the state of Virginia and what they had to offer was mounted in part as a response to that and as an effort to. Educate uh students in the next generation on the importance of these collections. So uh, that's the UVA connection. Uh, if you ask Patrick how he chose UVA, he will say uh he liked the people at UVA. He was talking to a lot of other institutions uh in addition to us, who shall remain nameless because they lost. Um, uh, but uh, he really stresses that uh, uh, the, the relationships that he had with people here were, were very important. Uh, and also I think it matters to Patrick that UVA has a strong connection to the history of the presidency. Um, a lot of his cartooning is about the presidency. That's certainly what I remember him for uh, you know, when I was growing up and reading his political cartoons in the newspaper. And there really isn't another university in the country that has the depth of history with respect to the presidency and the Center for Politics and the Miller Center and the Federal Executive Institute and all of these organizations in or around the university. So I think he wanted to put his gift in a context where his work could be understood uh, along with what it was commenting on. And I learned a lot in this process. Uh, Some things that surprised me I did not know, for example, uh, that if you are an artist and you donate your collection and your collection is worth millions of dollars, you don't get a tax credit for that. Um, The creator cannot uh, receive a tax benefit for giving away his or her works. So uh, for that reason, this process was even a little bit more complicated than usual in that there were two separate appraisals. There was an appraisal of Patrick's own work in the collection, and then there was an appraisal of things that Patrick hadn't created that were part of his collection, uh, like letters from presidents and things like that, because he could receive a a tax benefit for those things. And what we ended up doing, after many, many permutations of uh, possible financial arrangements, was a gift-purchase agreement. So we paid something for the collection, but we only paid about 5% of what it was worth, and the other 95% was a gift uh, from Patrick. And I know we think of political cartoonists as being incredibly wealthy, um, but uh, I don't surprise you, they're not. Uh, So that's an extremely meaningful gift uh, to us and and for them. Uh, But I would be remiss if I didn't say uh, that this gift uh, would not have happened without the person I'm about to turn the podium over to, Molly Schwartzberg. Molly has spent countless hours in uh, intense conversations about collections that are very personal to the creator and and to his family and she spent many, many hours in storage facilities, uh, many hours uh, packing and superintending the packing of materials um, she spent time in Santa Fe on multiple occasions, in Washington, D.C. on multiple occasions. Uh, she invests her heart and soul in the work that she does, and uh, it pays off. And it pays off because people recognize that commitment, and Patrick recognized that commitment. So thank you, Molly. And I will get out of the way and let you show them some of Patrick's work.
2: Thanks, John. Thank you, John. And actually the best thing about my job is going and meeting with donors and seeing collections in people's homes and helping them think about what it means to transfer physical ownership of that material to the institution while maintaining a collection with what is for any creative person, really their lifeblood. It is a really intense, profound experience to work with an individual to help them let go but also find themselves become part of a new community that they now really will belong to for the rest of their lives. So he gets honorary who status as does Susan. Um, This is Patrick and Susan and I find this portrait sort of hilarious because Patrick and I are in the front and there's Susan popping up in the back between the two of us. And Susan is an essential part of this process because she trained as an art conservator and then became a gallerist and ran her own gallery in Washington, D.C. And she and Patrick met professionally and then ended up marrying. She's represented his work for her whole career uh, for, or for many decades of her career. Um, so we not only benefit from acquiring the archive of Patrick's work, but acquiring an archive that was cared for with exceptional professionalism um, by someone who also loves him very much. So what more could you ask for as a curator? I don't know. Um, So let me talk to you a little bit about the process of bringing the collection in and then what the collection is. This is one of my favorite photographs uh, documenting the process of bringing in the collection. This is Ann Stokes. She works and has worked for the Oliphants for many years to manage the collection. Because Susan is a professional, she knows that you need to manage a collection like this. And because Patrick, Patrick's work is in such demand for exhibition, they need someone to manage it um, for um, loaning out to museums and other institutions. And here she's standing with... I, I'm going to say this many times. I'm going to say one of my favorite pieces, because there's so many, but one of my favorite pieces, which is um, a portrait of Al Gore on, um, on a plank of wood, slash as a plank of wood. Um, this, is, this, is, uh, this is pure Patrick, but also pure Patrick in a form that in a medium that many of us are, were, you know, are unaware of. Um, most people have experienced his work as political cartoons in the newspaper. He's been syndicated in usually around 500 newspapers at a time. But he's also a really remarkable fine artist. And you'll see a little bit more of that along the way. But here is the collection in storage. And you can see just a little bit of it behind uh, Anne there. Another part of the process is visiting Patrick and Susan at their home in Santa Fe. Meeting with the donor and getting to know them and hearing them talk about their own collection, their own archive, their own life's work, extremely important and also pretty rare. We often acquire someone's archive after they've passed away. So having the opportunity to meet with Patrick and talk about his work with him was really, really important in shaping how I can think about ways for us to use this collection at UVA. And here's Patrick at the the gallery in Santa Fe that represents his work. It's called the Gerald Peters Gallery. They gave us a wonderful behind-the-scenes tour. And here's Patrick looking at a selection of his um, of his sculptures, um, my favorite of these being um, LBJ as Centaur, a wonderful portrait of Lyndon B. Johnson there on the bottom. Next to him is Jesse Helms, um, a very unfortunate um, caricature indeed. Um, you can't really see him very well, but you'll, you'll see him next fall. I'll get back to that later. This is Patrick's studio in his home in Santa Fe. It's a multi-room space. Um, because he does work in multiple genres. There's space for painting, there's space for mocking up sculpture, there's space for research, and most importantly, there's the space for creating the daily political cartoons. One of the things I found most interesting about this archive was learning about that process. Patrick gets up every... or he doesn't do this anymore. He retired in 2013, but he would get up every morning watch all the news shows, read several newspapers front to back, and then sit down and start brainstorming on the day's cartoon, and then produce it. Um, Every single day for many, many years. And this is the space in which that work of constructing that cartoon occurred. Once the cartoon was done, it would get put in an envelope left outside the house, and a guy on a moped would come, pick it up, a courier, and take it to, um, to ship it off to all the, to, to transform it into a, a something called a, well, I, I'm not gonna go too much into the detail. We'll get into this in our exhibition next year, but basically ship it off to the 500 newspapers. This is before the digital age. Everything had to get shipped in order to be produced for the next day's um, cartoon. After about a year and a half two years, actually I think it was about two years, it was almost two years to the day I think that we worked on this collection because I remember looking back in my email and emailing Dean Unsworth and saying, I think we're actually almost exactly two years um, from start to finish. And to me, the end of the process of acquisition is when the material actually arrives. You hold your breath, it's in a moving van, you hope that it actually gets there. And this is where we start seeing um, the other folks involved in this process. Those are a couple of my colleagues standing way down at the end of a long row of book carts that are there to help us transport the materials from the moving truck into the special collections storage space. Um, It takes a lot of people to make something like this happen. So what exactly is this collection that we've been talking about? It seems very abstract until now. So what I'd like to do for the rest of the talk is talk to you a little bit about what's in the collection and what we expect to happen with it. This is just a snapshot I took down in our stacks of what it looked like when they arrived. Everything just got kind of put on shelves. We still haven't cataloged it. It takes a long time to get that process underway. But as you can see, it's all in archival boxes. These are cartoon drawings, correspondence, and sketchbooks getting ready to go and that is a tiny portion of a collection whose linear footage I haven't even yet finished calculating. So by the numbers, what do we have? We have 6,800 original political cartoons and these are drawings in pen and ink that are um, in preparation for the day. Um, (laughs) This is a really great one. It's Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev um, playing poker. Just one of 6,800. I mean, how do you pick? I, I, can't, I, can't even, I can't even start. Now, you see in the bottom corner of that cartoon, if you can see, there's little Punk. Punk is, uh, he's kind of a meta commentator, and he, he, he really has a lot to say about whatever's going on in the cartoon. So there's actually a second layer built in, and, and Punk will come up again later. <clears throat> there are about 175 of the preparatory sketchbooks that Patrick used each day to brainstorm the cartoon. And I think everybody involved in this process would agree that these are the heart and soul of the collection. Seeing his mind at work, seeing the artist's process as he has just finished absorbing massive amounts of media and then taking that media and using it to generate a cartoon. So here we have um, Chaney with a shotgun uh, (laughs) and uh, George... uh, George Bush down there um, with um, he's he's putting um, like the chalk the, the clay pigeons you know he's they're shooting the clay pigeons are small children because Cheney is trying to shoot down a child health care act and um, and 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 he's trying to convince uh, Bush to veto it or maybe Bush just has vetoed it so this is I don't know whether this actually became a cartoon. But, you know, he's trying to come up with a way. Sometimes they're extremely inappropriate, as I would say um, this one is. Um, And some of them are so inappropriate, I wouldn't even show them to you today. But you're free to come be researchers in the reading room and go through the the notebooks yourself. But 175 of these covering decades. There are about 100 or more commissioned drawings. These are done as book covers, magazine covers, suites of illustrations in magazines and other places, posters. This is, um, you all remember Jesse Helms who popped up. This is a 1986 uh, item from a, a set uh, having to do with Jesse Helms and censorship. This is when um, Playboy magazine and others um, were, were in the news a lot and Helms was on a mission. And I like this one because we've got the library burning, the librarian burning books. So just that's me right there. Uh, that's what we like to do in special collections. Um, this is unusual, he did this one with a, a very neon um, um, watercolor of, of some kind um, and it's, it's hard to communicate that um, in reproduction. You actually have to see the original to get that true color. As I mentioned, um, Patrick is an artist in many media um, and he has done a large set of works on paper um, over the course of his career. This is a jazz musician. Um, You could call this a caricature, but I don't think that's appropriate. This is a much more sophisticated, nuanced, elegant um, work that takes a lot more time to produce than um, a daily cartoon. So we have him working on these very ephemeral pieces and then on pieces that are really meant to last and that are meant to sort of hang as fine art. And you've also seen already a couple of examples of the bronze sculpture. This is a remarkable body of work. This is Ronald Reagan on a bucking bronco. Um, this looks a lot like a famous uh, Remington at the White House. Um, it's brought to the, to the present um, by Oliphant. And he often pictures Reagan in this kind of attenuated state of just being whipped around by circumstance, by the political environment in which he lives. And what's wonderful about these um, sculptures is that You see them in juxtaposition to the daily cartoons as polar opposites. We have the the incredibly ephemeral cartoon that is in the newspaper and then disappears and you never see it again. It's only relevant to that particular moment. Often these political cartoons are very hard to understand many years later. You have to go back and read the news to grasp what they're about. And then we have sculpture in bronze, the most permanent of formats. So we've got this wonderful pairing in Patrick, and I think a very rare ability of an artist to work in radically different genres. Um, Truly exceptional. And then finally, along with all of the work itself is everything that accompanies it. A massive archive of about 40 linear feet of things like records of exhibitions, correspondence, business files, personal materials, photographs, audio recordings and so on. There are a lot of ways that this rich, vast collection allows researchers and others in. And I would say that um, I'm just gonna go over a few of these entry points to give you a sense of the range. First is the development and the sort of arc of Patrick's career as an artist. This is an example of one of two scrapbooks that Patrick's father kept of his work early in his career. As you may know, Patrick grew up in Australia He came to the US basically because he was becoming a political cartoonist and there just wasn't enough good, meaty, nasty stuff going on in Australia. He wanted to be at the middle of it all, which meant he had to come to the US where, you know, this is the 60s, he came in the middle of the 1960s. I mean, where would a political cartoonist want to be other than here? And he never left, I mean, for good reason. There's just too much good material. But this is when he's still in Australia and his father kept these two beautifully preserved scrapbooks of his cartoons. So you can see him before he developed his own aesthetic. Many of his very early cartoons just look like any other political cartoon of that time. And then you see him starting to develop and I love it at some points you start seeing a little penguin figure show up who looks like a real penguin for a while. It takes him a while to develop into punk, the figure that we know today. And even though these are newsprint, they are in exceptional condition. They're really quite remarkable. We also have process documentation. This is an example of uh, one of the commissioned works that's in color, and it's just a detail, and you can see my hand there. We've got the drawing, um, the background, and then instructions on the printing process. Here's another example, um, and what's great about these is, is the preservation of these obsolete technologies, specifically for our faculty to teach students with, about how artworks in color are produced before the digital age. For about a year, punk became the subject of a Sunday funny. I don't know if any of you remember this. Um, It was called Sunday Punk and uh, it was an incredibly challenging, frustrating, irritating process. Um, And so Patrick stopped producing uh, Sunday Punk after a year. What made it particularly difficult was that he had to draw the cartoon, you know, the multi-strip Sunday cartoon, and then go in and manually add numbers to represent each of the colors for that cartoon. That's the production method. This was not a good enough payoff for him. And as someone who is so talented artistically, you can see why he was not willing to sacrifice his time on this cartoon for more than a year. There's a whole box of originals um, for this this short-lived project. One of the most important things that Beth Turner and I have talked about is the way that this art in the newspaper is an important strategy of speaking truth to power, and that's Beth's, I think, favorite phrase for talking about Patrick's um, political cartoons, is the importance of these works for communicating about and to people in power. This is um, an original plate for Patrick's Pulitzer Prize-winning cartoon. This is during the Vietnam War, and it's backwards because it's the printing plate from the Denver Post. So there would have been a printing plate like this at every newspaper. Um, and it's, uh, it's a, a, Vietnamese, a North Vietnamese holding um, another North Vietnamese. And it says, they won't get us to the conference table, will they? And uh, this was nominated by the syndicate um, to be uh, the Pulitzer Prize. And it was awarded the prize. Um, Patrick thinks more because it made a political point um, that the Pulitzers wanted. He actually thought he did a lot better cartoons that year. Um, so there's this complexity of the, of the awards system. But this original plate is the only one in the collection, and it's wonderful for us to have it, because it is so representative of the incredible power of the political cartoon, both, at, both as a published artifact and in the awards system um, as well. <laughs> I was giggling while I was putting this slide together because I was cropping it down and I just kept laughing. (laughs) Satire, the humor, satire, the satire of world-changing events, of things that impact everybody's daily life. This is such an important part of Patrick's archive and such an important aspect of his work and something that I think intellectually is very, very challenging to approach Humor is something that's difficult for scholars to work with, and difficult for faculty to teach. And I think that this collection provides so many fantastic entry points for this. Um, what I love about this is, this is this is a watercolor. This is not a daily political cartoon. This is something he sat down and spent a lot of time on. And here we have George Bush as um, Mary Poppins. Um, I don't know whether Mary Poppins is, I think she's on her way in. Um, to take care of the bank's children. Um, I have not done the research to find out what he's responding to um, in George Bush's career, but I would never have thought of this. <laughs> but how perfect is it? I mean, really, he's just wonderful. Um, and, and I, some of his portraits of, of George W. Bush are absolutely beautiful because he's so tall and thin. And Patrick does such beautiful work with the line and attenuation, like I mentioned with Reagan. Um, He's particularly strong, I think, when he's working with somebody with a very exaggerated um, uh, physical presence already, and he just does beautifully here. Um, Some of the strengths in the collection that I think really do um, pull out some of the instruction and research opportunities are 60 videotapes of Patrick. Uh, this kind of media we can digitize and make available. Um, and that, those videotapes include Patrick drawing. Um, were any of you here in 2009? Anyone raise their hand who was here in 2009 when Patrick came and, and drew live on stage? He's done this many times. He prefers not to do small talk. So he often, at events and openings for his work, he will draw. Um, so everyone can watch him draw and then he doesn't have to, have to talk. He can practice his work. Um, and it's amazing to, to watch him drawing live. Um, and these drawings, there's one at the Gerald Peters gallery that they have hung in a stairwell because it won't fit anywhere else. These massive pieces, again, in great contrast to that tiny political cartoon that appears in the newspaper. So we have a lot of interviews of him, uh, a lot of uh, videotapes of him drawing, and then a lot of videotapes of him being interviewed, mostly on Washington, D.C., kind of political news shows, so really wonky stuff um, from across um, his career, really of great value for understanding the relationship between the political cartoonist and that political environment. Um, Fan mail and hate mail, lots of hate mail, Uh, I got to love the hate mail. Um, Responses from the public to specific cartoons, complaints about cartoons, my favorite, suggestions for cartoons. I think you should do a cartoon about this and here's how you can draw it. Uh, which cracks me up. Sometimes we have Patrick's comments on these letters, which are often the best part of the letter. (laughs) Correspondence with his subjects. There's a lot that's really interesting about the relationship between the cartoonist and the subject. Something I learned long before meeting Patrick, but when I was already working at UVA, is that a lot of cartoons end up in the personal archive of the subject. So... uh, Uh, Governor uh, Harry Byrd of UVA, we have massive quantities of political cartoons about Byrd. In the Edward Stettinius collection related to the founding of the UN, we have massive quantities of political cartoons about that founding because the cartoonist would send that upon request from the subject. This is quite common. Um, So Here's an example, uh, 1969, of Richard Nixon writing probably dictating but writing, to thank Oliphant for a cartoon on welfare reform um, that he has inscribed and sent along. And there are a lot of letters in the collection from political operatives at various levels. There's one, and I, I couldn't find it for today, where somebody, somebody working in, I think in the White House says, "You know, everybody else has a cartoon in their office and I don't have one yet, can you please send me one? Because um, it's sort of a mark of honor to have an Oliphant in your office. And I have a feeling that the more savage, the better. There's a really interesting thing about the relationship between the cartoonist and their subjects. Um, Patrick does not pull punches, as we know. And Richard Nixon is really, obs- I mean, it gets really bad. Um, but R- Nixon wants, wants one of his cartoons. That's something, there's something about that dynamic that I find really fascinating and can't wait to learn more about. It's just a lot of documentation of the career. Here's uh, a couple of photographs of Patrick very young with his, his pipe in hand. Um, the young, rakish, you know, trouble-making political cartoonist. Um, and um, there's also just who knows what else. Here's some of, the, some of the plastic cartons, you know, that arrived that we know pretty much what's inside of them because the collection's well-organized, but we don't know what everything is inside, and we don't know what the researchers are gonna find. Um, if there's a real most important thing you learn working with materials like this is that you cannot know the value of a collection, um, the full value of a collection really ever. It takes generations of researchers for that value to come out and that value is shifting and changing a lot through time. So what's next? What are we doing with all this amazing stuff now that it's here? Well, you'll be glad to know that first up we are working on an exhibition for fall 2019, that'll be in the main gallery over in Special Collections. These are two of the most important people. These are the two most important people working on this project. That's Beth Turner, who you've heard a lot about so far. And that's Holly Robertson, who is the library's exhibition coordinator. So Beth and I are already in deep brainstorming how we're going to set this exhibition up to showcase as much of Patrick's career as we can um, for the UVA audience. Mostly because we want to get some real ideas into the minds of our faculty and students so they can begin leveraging this collection for their own interdisciplinary work. The collection needs to be processed. We have archivists, in Special Collections who work to describe our collections to national standards and make them available online in what's called a finding aid. And we are working hard on um, setting up the process for processing this collection. Um, This is one of our wonderful student assistants. I snapped this picture of her a few weeks ago and when I was looking for a picture, I had to use this one because we are so lucky to have amazing students um, working in the collections with us. And she's working on a 19th century family archive from Virginia. I also just really wanted to show you this picture. This is my favorite thing in the world right now. I told you I have a lot of favorite things, but this is my favorite thing in the world right now. This is Special Collections brand new flat file storage, which we have been waiting for for 14 years. So thanks, John, for helping us get that. Um, When we moved into our building, it was set up with tracks for uh, compact, movable, flat file storage. As you may know, we have really strong collections in the history of Virginia, which means we have lots and lots of maps And we also have a lot of broadsides and posters and things like this, a lot of political materials. Um, And we have lots of flat files. And just last summer, we installed these magnificent things. And we just got a fancy special ladder so that people like Joseph, my colleague over in Special Collections, can safely pull things in and out of this massive storage system. And one of the things I was super excited to tell Patrick and Susan about was, of course your collection should come to UVA. We have magnificent storage for it because when the wife of the artist is a conservator, she knows how important storage is. So this is the back end. We love the back end. And this is my favorite photograph right now of that back end. Reading room and class use, this is the most important thing that will come out of this collection in the long term is how it is used for both research and instruction. This is a class of students um, in one of our classroom spaces working on putting together an exhibition. We actually have a growing number of faculty who want their students to learn about exhibition curation. Um, This is not something that we used to do at all, but now we have classes curating exhibitions quite often. So this is a class in the early stages of a show, um, and they're working across the collections, and um, we really love the opportunity to make our gallery spaces um, an educational space, not just for people coming to look at the materials, but for students thinking about how to put art, put papers, put documents and books out on display successfully. Um, In the reading room, we expect to see a lot of researchers uh, locally, but also from out of town. The thing about archival collections is that they're only in one place. So wherever they are, the scholars have to come. We host about a a third of our researchers are coming from elsewhere to use our collections. So we will expect to get an injection of a lot of researchers from all over the country and possibly the world once this collection is processed and its descriptions up online. We haven't yet figured out how much of this collection we can digitize, um, hopefully a lot of it, um, to put up online and make available to people across the world. Um, We have a wonderful digitization studio and a rigorous program to digitize. But of course, everything has to be done um, with conservation in mind. So it's a lot slower practice than, say, Google Books when they come in with their automated machines. But we expect to digitize quite a bit of material Uh, in preparation for the exhibition. And then as we process the collection, we'll come up with a longer term plan for for broader digitization. And then finally, we're looking forward to collaborating with any number of groups across grounds. These are just some of the organizations that we've already been working with to some extent um, in uh, in thinking about this collection. Um, One of my favorite uh, events that we had when Patrick and Susan first visited was they met with a group of interdisciplinary faculty um, from across the university, people in media studies, center for politics, art, literature. What's really interesting about political cartoons is that they don't fall in any one genre or any one field of study, they really are an interdisciplinary genre. They don't have a comfortable place in an art department because they're too political and too ephemeral. They don't have a comfortable place in a journalism program because they're too visual, Um, but they Belong beautifully in both of those places and in the interstices between fields. And we expect to see some great opportunities for interdisciplinary teaching. There's a lot going on at UVA, especially in developing the new curriculum for first year students, in helping those students to think between traditional fields. And I think this collection will provide really, really interesting opportunities for that too. Um, to, for those, for those, uh, those modes of interpretation to really blossom. So I'm going to stop there. Um, and uh, I think we're going to open it up to questions. Can I ask the first one? What's the first question? When will the exhibit be up? Oh, the exhibition will be opening I, September 2019. Uh, Sometime in September 2019. I don't have the day on the, on the tip of my tongue. But yes, it's, it's next year, alas. It takes a lot of work to put one of those together. Yes, sir. Uh, We've got a mic over here. Oh, sorry. Oh, okay, so we have a question in the back. And John, if you want to join me up here to answer. Okay. Okay.
1: So with what just happened in Brazil, I, I see the pictures of your archive space. What sort of security do you have in the sense of fire protection, water protection? You have this fabulous collection coming. I'm sure he asked, how are you going to protect it? Can you give us a little insight on that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. So I can't even read those articles. Um, The Anthropological and Natural Science Museum in Brazil burned to the ground. Um, I'm very glad to say that when our new dean arrived, one of the first things he did was tell Special Collections that we needed to have a security audit. And that sounds terrifying and horrible, but we were all really, really excited, because that meant that university funds would be given to us to look at our security for our collections at all levels, all kinds of security, and make sure that the collections are safe. And we actually just completed that audit. Do you want to talk a little bit about this this issue more broadly, John?
1: Sure. Just just briefly, that covered uh, security as in uh, what are our procedures to prevent theft. Uh, This material is moving in and out of storage all the time. But it did also cover things like uh, fire suppression. Uh, That building is now 14 14. years old so it's a relatively new building but uh, part of the audit was actually replacing the security system because that was end-of-life we could only buy parts on eBay Um, not a good thing Um, and but it it, unlike let's say Alderman Library uh, Harrison Small is a building that was built with fire suppression in it and and throughout Um, so it's also Uh, for 14 years been very successful at preventing water incursion even though it's underground Um, so I think the collection is quite secure and uh, perhaps a little more so after the audit
0: Has has he voiced any disappointment about retiring before the Trump era?
2: (laughs) Yes, yes a thousand times yes Um, He did draw a couple of Trump cartoons, um, but yeah, and oh, I mean, this is the real, you know, it's really hard work, as John very kindly described, bringing in a collection like this. The best part of it is being able to sit at a table with Patrick over a glass of whatever and talking about the Trump administration. (laughs) And um, yeah, I, I think all of us wish that we could see him. Um, work with this. I mean, just the hair alone. Um, (laughs) I mean, what more is there to say?
1: So so this is exciting to say the least, but uh, tell us a little bit more about Elephant's uh, working day when he was having to make a cartoon every day. I can't think of what a drag it would be to have to get up, drink your coffee, and then listen to read all the media and stuff and produce a cartoon. So did he have time after that on a typical day to do other, this other kind of art, the sculptures and so forth and so on?
2: I think that this is just an example of where most of us can't really comprehend the workings of genius. I mean, and I know that's a big word to use, but I do think that there are people who are consummate artists and this is what they do and they have the ability and the um commitment to sustain attention and this i I don't know how he sustained attention but i don't think that patrick could survive without being funny and without making comment on the world and i think that so on the one hand i think he felt that he was doing or feels that what he was doing is very important to make a contribution, just like a journalist who has to write articles every day to deadline for the political process. But also it was something that he needed to do and still needs to do to some extent to this day. Um, He's having a harder time. He's getting older and there are some challenges that come with that. Um, But yeah, I mean, I honestly can't really um, imagine what that would be like because I don't have that kind of mind. But I think that that's what this collection reveals is a very particular kind of mind.
1: So, uh, one question. Along that line, a lot of artists are loners or, you know, do something by themselves all the time, but is there some mentor e or someone who's a protege of uh, Patrick that he's like, I want this or those people to be, like, intricate and bringing more life to this as I'm not here anymore? Is there that kind of person that's included in your process?
2: That's a great question. I don't think I ever heard him mention any particular younger cartoonist who he's working with. I do think that he's very concerned about and interested in asking the question, what is the future of editorial cartooning? Um, In an era where most newspapers are experienced online, and you don't turn to the editorial page to read your elephant cartoon each day. Um, So the situation is such that uh, I think that the, the field is very much in flux, and I don't think anybody really knows where it will go next. There are people doing a lot of graphic commentary of this kind online, but is it reaching the same audiences? I think that along with a lot of other things that are happening with the rise of Internet culture is you pick your own resources online where you're (coughs) going to get your news and you get the commentary that you want to see. So instead of, you know, there being one local newspaper, or maybe two local newspapers that have the political cartoons of the day, we're going to see more and more polarization, um, or at least that's my experience so far, is more and more polarization. Cartoons not written for a single shared audience, but for people on different ends of the political spectrum. Where that's going to go over the next few years and few decades is a really, really interesting question. And one that I'm hoping we have some opportunities to think about here at UVA. Um, This is the kind of topic that I think um, can be addressed in public forums, in symposia, things like this that might come out of this collection um, if we're lucky enough to be able to put them together. Uh, My question is uh, to ask you to give us a description of what is involved in actually processing a single element of the collection and then perhaps an estimate of how long you think that that will take to, to be completed? So that's a great question. The collection is in beautiful order already. So we've estimated that we need only about a year to get the whole thing up online in space, which is a database system that we use to keep our manuscript collections organized. So this is a, an unusual collection for us because it is about half manuscripts and about half art. So um, we're going to hire a project archivist to come in to do this process and that person will determine what the best practices are for describing artworks and describing the archive. Um, that processing can be at various levels of specificity when it comes to the art, there will probably be a lot more detailed than there will be when it comes to the boxes of say um, exhibition um, paperwork. Um, so the, the archivist needs to strategically look through the entire collection, determine what depth of description is possible and necessary. Um, of course possible always uh, beats out necessary. Um, there's only so much you can do. You can't describe everything completely. Um, and then it goes up online for the world to see. Um, so the process is, is basically about learning um, the proper terminology. Um, there's a standard vocabulary for description of both archives and artworks, um, and making sure that we get those, um, that we use those um, both for the archival and the art side, which is an unusual process for an archivist. So it's going to be a challenging project for the person who does it. Sorry, my mic's getting a little wonky. So, Okay.
1: First of all, thank you very much. Uh, congratulations. It's amazing to hear his work ethic to get up, listen to the news, read the newspapers, and then get to work? Uh, Does he continue to do that? And second, uh, when he produced, did he also keep some narrative to tell the context? Because he left a lot of context in all his cartoons. But if not, are your students who are coming to help challenged to look into the history, the political history? Because you had to be there in 1969 to understand the Nixon welfare cartoon. And I find that students here aren't really studying history so much. Uh, you a- answered my third question, which was uh, digitization, and you've set your priorities there. But are the students involved to the point where they are going back and helping you understand the context of history that produced this amazing political satire?
2: So the students who work in special collections know. Because we we make the material available, and then we wait. And the researchers and the classes need to come in and do that work themselves. So we just make the material available, and then, then the context needs to be um, evaluated by the, the people who come in and use it. Um, he did not leave a narrative behind. What he did leave behind um, each day is those sketchbooks. We don't have them for every single cartoon, but for a lot of them, Um, And this is the case with all political cartoons. We have political cartoons. We have a lot of other political cartoons in our collections, and there are many that I've tried to learn about and I can't understand. We have a wonderful Nast cartoon, very famous, Thomas Nast, very important early American cartoonist. And there's a a cartoon of, uh, I think it's Andrew Jackson, and half of of him is wearing one outfit, is wearing like a military outfit, and the other half is wearing um, a union suit. Um, and I I tried to understand it, and it would require, you know, like a student to do a an end of semester research paper probably to figure out what that graphic means today. Um, and I think that um, that that's going to be the case for Patrick's cartoons, especially for our undergrads. Like for me, you know, Mikhail Gorbachev and. <laughs> and Ronald Reagan played poker. I mean, like, that's great. You know, I was in high school. I get it. Like, this is, this is, my, this is within my lifespan. We have students who were born, you know, way too recently. It's not OK. It's just not OK. Um, but, but to answer your question about students doing history at the university, I would take issue with that for the community of students who come into special collections. We have a lot of faculty who teach history classes, who have their students come in and use our collections. So I don't know about those other bozos out there, but there are, because all I do is special collections. I never leave my hole in the ground. Um, There are a lot of faculty, more and more faculty, who bring their students to special collections and want them to be doing historical research with primary materials. It's really, really heartening, so you'll be glad to know that there's a lot of that going on. Last Last question.
1: Uh, thank you both for the presentation. Uh, this is a question for Dean Underwood, since he's here. Uh, could you bring us up to date on the renovations plan for Alderman Library? Sure, be happy to. How much time do we have? <laughs> Six minutes. Okay. Um, so at the most recent board meeting, uh, the plans for the Alderman renovation were uh, unanimously approved by the board. And that means, uh, as far as the process goes, that those uh, plans and a request for appropriation now go to the state, and will come up in the spring in the state uh, budget appropriation process. And uh, if the funding is appropriated, which we hope it will be because the state owns the building, um, then we should be able to begin actual demolition and renovation in the summer of 2020 there's an awful lot of preparatory work that has already been done and is being done to get ready for that so uh, we completed this past spring the doubling in size of ivy stacks which is our uh, storage facility high-density storage facility on old ivy road that now is covered with solar panels on the roof it's a hundred and fifty year preservation quality hvac inside the entire building so probably the best environment for the preservation of print in the state Um, and that had to be done because more than half of our collection is currently in Alderman Library and we had to have somewhere to put it because the part of Alderman that we're demolishing are the stacks the old stacks and the new stacks Um, those are half height floors Uh, there is no head head headroom for sprinkler systems Uh, the old stacks the stacks are structural Uh, they actually hold the floor up so you can't move the risers. Um, They're not ADA accessible. Um, That part of the building was built to be what Ivy Stacks is now um, in 1938. But now we have a better way to do that and we don't have to do it on the main library site. So we'll replace those uh, Stacks areas on essentially the same footprint with full height floors. So it will be a much less confusing building uh, once it's done. You'll know which floor you're on um, and have some hope of finding the exits, um, which is, especially for students early in their career, a real problem. Um, It will be a much safer building. Uh, We'll have three doors on the front instead of one. You know, if you think about a building with no fire suppression and one door, uh, that's not a good situation. Uh, We'll have a north side entrance on University Avenue at the second floor level. Um, that'll be very open to the town instead of what we do now, which is turn our back. Um, there'll be an expanded cafe near that north entrance on the east side near McCormick Road with outdoor seating and terracing. Um, and if you enter on the second floor, you'll walk through an area that's really devoted to activities uh, that are centered on the print collection. So, a Rare Book School will be there, it's teaching spaces and workspaces we will have for the first time a really proper conservation lab and a preservation lab on that second floor as well and so you know when you enter that way you'll walk through and see how we work with that collection to to keep it and teach from it Um, there'll be a lot of user-operated high-density shelving Uh, so you push a button and it moves a bunch of stacks so you create an aisle where you need the aisle that's what we're doing to try to make up for the fact that we're losing lots of floors of book storage Um, but we're building four of those five floors in the new section so they can hold compact shelving throughout even though for example on the second floor we won't open that way Um, it's gonna be uh, a really beautiful building it will essentially continue the aesthetic of old alderman Uh, the three-quarters of the building that remains will be really restored to original finishes So uh, rooms like the McGregor room will look the way they do. In the new building, if you came out of the McGregor room and walked down that hall, the Statenius Gallery, you would, at the end of it, you'd enter Clemens Library because we're going to create a connection between the two buildings at that level. Um, In the interim, while the books are off-site, right now we're putting uh, high-density user-operated shelving on the first floor of Clemens Library to hold about half a million volumes during the renovation as a a user-accessible browsing collection. And the feature that people like most when they see the drawings is those light wells in the middle of Alderman that were built to bring light to the interior offices. That's why you have to cross a bridge in Alderman to get from the front of the building to the back. Those light wells will become usable space. We'll put skylights over them, we'll bring the floor to one level, and they'll just be part of the second floor. When you, you know, when you walk in, you walk into a sort of an indoor piazza space in the middle of the building that will have plenty of light It'll be a great event space, and I hope to see you all there someday soon. Um, it should open in uh, 2023, if all goes well. So no class of students should pass through UVA without spending being, being able to spend some time in Alderman Library. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention what I think Molly wants to talk about. No. Right now, if you go to Harrison Small, there's a really excellent and interesting collection on... Yeah. The, on the health system. Do you want to say just a word about that? Sure.
2: Yeah, before before we leave you, uh, just a quick plug for our current exhibition, which is in the space where the Oliphant exhibition will be next year, which is 200 Years of Healthcare at UVA. We've given over our gallery to our wonderful colleagues over at the Health Sciences Historical Collections, and if you're not aware that they have their own special collections over in Health Sciences, it is absolutely fantastic and they have put together an exhibition filled with really remarkable items giving the history of healthcare at UVA including my favorite item, an actual iron lung that is in the middle of our gallery space. Um, it is really spectacular and was actually used as recently as the 1990s. So don't miss that show. If the game ends early, come on over. We're open until five, one to five. Thank you.